Um, Today, we are going to continue our series, Surveying Through the Bible. Um, We have been working our way through that. I'm going to talk about judges today, but I'm going to acknowledge that just recently, I did 28 messages on judges, so this is going to be a little bit different. Um, I feel like I can do it a little quicker, um, and so I'm going to take a time to to do two things. First of all, I want to give you some reflections, um, and this may be... um, first hour, I really felt myself ranting um, <laughs> a couple of times, and that you're going to hear that again. Um, it, it may be that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on the third week of dealing with shingles, so I feel a little bit of irritation, and I'm going to get on a plane, and maybe I feel the freedom to just say some things, because I'm leaving the country in two days. Um, so, <laughs> but I want to talk to you about um, four funerals I've been to uh, this fall, spring, until last week. Um, I went to four funerals that were amazing funerals. Uh, They were inspiring. Um, Booger Roach, Don Harrison, Vicki Pepper, and Anita Ashlock. Those four funerals were um, impressive. Um, I was able to be involved in two of them. The others I was just attending. Um, But the testimony that was left behind by these four people is pretty significant. Uh, For Booger and Don, their families talked about the investment that those men made in their families and how they loved and encouraged and offered grace and accepted the people in their family. And and the testimonies were were consistent and and generational um, in terms of how those men impacted their families. Um, For Vicki Pepper... um, One of our dearest friends, um, a mentor for my wife, for me, um, an inspiration, unexpectedly passed away. And the week before Christmas, I was able to be a part of her funeral. And the consistent testimony, and that's part of what I heard in these, in these four funerals, is just the consistent lifelong impact that these people had. Um, for Vicki especially, for Anita as well, two-hour funerals where people talked about the consistency of Anita's joy, even though for 17 years she struggled with cancer. It recurred and recurred and recurred. And she said, I will not let that steal my joy. Um, And and she didn't. Uh, For Vicki, who for her entire life was so other-centered in unbelievable ways and committed to everybody hearing the message of the gospel and gave her life to that, Um, These four funerals were inspiring, and here's what I think I want to say to you. Start living your life in light of your funeral. What are people going to say at your funeral? What are people going to say at my funeral? Are there going to be 12 people there who are going to say, ah, okay, he's gone. Let's, you know, make a meal for their family. Or will you live your life in such a way that people will stand up one after another after another saying, this was a consistent life of a person who invested in their family and invested in the gospel. I went to four funerals that were that way. And it made me want to tell you, start living your life right now in light of your funeral. What are people going to say at your funeral? I also want to mention something about... um, this past week and what prayer was going on this past week. Last, last Monday at our house, um, we were watching the football game. 
when DeMar Hamlin went down with an injury, um, and we were doing some other things, but all of a sudden you kind of noticed something special was going on that was different. And, and we were able to notice, and, and I started saying to, to Dawn and Josh, these grown men are crying. And then they started showing the pictures, and I was impressed that they were showing the pictures of, of football players ho- holding their pads and walking around, and you could tell they were praying. You could see them mouthing the words. These grown men were praying. And, and what happened um, was over the next couple of hours, on ESPN, I began to count how many times they mentioned prayer. And they mentioned prayer over 200 times. This is, this is a good thing that happened. And throughout this, this next week, we have heard message after message and placards and people uh, tweeting and, and saying, we're praying for DeMar Hamlin. And, and prayer really became pretty pervasive in some surprising places. News media outlets reporting on prayer. On ESPN, the coach of the Buffalo Bills saying, I want to give God all the glory. The coach of, e- of the Bills on ESPN, I want to give God all the glory for the work and the healing in DeMar's life. That was, that was in, our, in our world. And in that stadium, folks, in that stadium, everybody was quiet, and there were people all over the place praying, and how they ended the game when they went home. I don't know how many of you see it or have seen the pictures of it. They ended the game with both teams gathering to pray for this man. There is something about when the rubber meets the road, people know you better pray. And that gives me some cautious hope that maybe our world still has some sense of, if it's bad, turn to God. But I also want to say this. In our home, I started counting the times that prayer was used on ESPN. I was noticing grown men crying in each other's shoulders, men walking, praying, teams gathering to pray. But you know what? We didn't stop and pray in our house. We didn't. I watched it happening, and I think there are a lot of signs about it, a lot of um, hashtags about it. But I'm not sure people are really praying. And, and, and for us as a church, I want us to be a church that prays. Not just that says, oh, we pray. Um, folks, at the end of our service, there should be people down talking and praying with our prayer teams. They are called to do that. They're gifted to do that. Prayer should be a part of what is going on in our lives. And we shouldn't just talk about it and be glad that people have talked about it this past week. We should be doing it. And I'm going to, again, give you my, my admonition Um, don't tell people you're going to pray for them. Pray for them. If they ask you to pray, pray for them. I do that. For many of you, you've been on the phone with me and said, hey, would you pray for me about this? You've been in my office. Hey, pray for me about this. And I'll stop right there and go, okay, let's pray. We're going to pray right now. Um, Or if somebody tweets, you know, or, or texts you, I do this as well. Somebody texts and says, would you pray about this? I will text a prayer back. Folks, start praying, okay? Don't just be happy about, we talked about prayer. Last night in the football game, before the game, both teams came together, circled around for prayer. That's great. That gives me some cautious hope. Maybe this is the fourth great awakening. I don't know. But it's certainly not going to be anything if God's people here at Fellowship Bible Church aren't actually really praying. So, so um, again, maybe it's, it's shingles. Maybe it's I'm leaving the country. I don't know what it is. But, but folks, live your life in light of your funeral. 
And don't just talk about prayer. Don't just talk about these things. Do it. Um, pray. Um, pray. <laughs> We've been going through um, a study of the books of the Bible one at a time. And if this is your, your first time here, we have started a, a series where I'm covering um, a book of the Bible each week, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we did. The Pentateuch is really the foundation of God's rule on earth. It's his plan for his people. It sets it up. Um, it, it lets you know, I'm going to talk through the Pentateuch. It lets you know that God is in charge. He's sovereign. He created the world. He can do whatever he wants. And, and he's got a great plan. He's got a good plan for us. His plan is to redeem us and save us and, and be with us. And because he's with us, we need to take sin seriously and, and live as his people distinct in the world, um, but taking care of our sin. And, and as he's with us, he's walking with us. Gosh, we're, we're um, in the middle of difficult times, but he's with us all the time. He's guiding us. And he's, his work is not going to be stopped. Um, we may rebel. People may oppose it. It's not going to be stopped. And he's serious about all this. I just talked through the Pentateuch, okay? Th- that's what we've seen. Um, we're moving into the historical books. This is the outworking of the theocracy. After the, the setup has been laid down, this is how it begins to work. We saw the beginning of that in Joshua. We're going to look at it again in Judges today. It's God's work with his people. Uh, Joshua through Nehemiah is what we're going to be doing. And, and today I'm going to focus on Judges, um, and Judges is the world turned upside down. If you were here during the service, many people were offended um, because we had toilets on the, on the stage for about 20 weeks. Um, because the book of Judges is just a giant toilet flush. Um, and so I've just got a graphic. We didn't pull the toilets back out. Um, but, but I'm going to acknowledge something here. I'm, I'm going to acknowledge that I preached 28 messages on Judges. And if you want to see them, go to the church website. If you want to listen to them, if you're really into this... Um, Go to the church website. There's 28 messages there. And in the resource section, there's 57 resource handouts I had for judges. So there's a lot of material out there. And I'm going to assume, for the most part, many of you have heard that. Um, So I'm going to move through this a little more quickly at the end. Um, But I've got a little bit more ranting I want to do here. Um, I want to talk about a few thoughts on our cultural moment and judges. Because it's easy to look at what was going on in Judges and the decline in morality. And by the way, it's the decline in the morality of God's people. This book is not about, oh, the Canaanites were getting worse. The Amorites were getting worse. It's God's people were getting worse. And it's easy for us to look at them and say, how could they have been assimilated into this ungodly culture? In the book, God's people are are, um, involved in child sacrifice. God's people... Um, are um, Samson, who we elevate as this hero because he's strong and powerful and he killed a bunch of Philistines. He's the worst guy in the book. He never met a prostitute he didn't like. Um, and, and it's God's people doing the worst things they can possibly do. Idolatry is rampant and, and they're just being assimilated into the, into the world around them. One of the messages I'm going to talk about this, the Israelites look like the Canaanites. Sodom and Gomorrah has come to the people of God. And folks, we are like that. We can't just look at the judge's generation and say, how could that have happened? Those spiritual people of God were assimilated into their culture. It's happening for us too. 
And I want to throw up a warning sign to say we've got to be careful about how the culture shapes us these days. And I'm going to talk about two things related to that. First of all, this. Digital media, social media, news outlets, and your phone are discipling you. They are shaping your identity. Um, They know exactly what they're doing. In 1985, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. When he wrote that book, he was talking about changing from three or four TV channels to 20 and how that that was changing what what was going on in, in television and that it was going, what was being changed is we're moving more from information um, to entertainment. And he said, 20 channels, we're going to amuse ourselves to death. We have 500 channels today. And nobody paid attention to the damage that Neil Postman, in what most people think almost prophetically, was talking about, about how it was going to change our world. And, and we, we haven't paid attention to it. I've got 500 channels at my house. I've got 500 channels that if I push a couple of buttons on this iPad, I can pull them up right here. Because it is so easy to amuse ourselves to death. Um, a few years back, The Social Dilemma, um, a, a movie by Netflix, if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. It's absolutely frightening of how the algorithms are made to seduce you and to bring you into the rabbit holes that the world wants you to be in. The same thing is true of news outlets. They know how to get, song, get, get stories that either create fear or rage, and both of those are addictive. Fear and rage creates chemicals in your brain that make you want to come back for more. So you think about the stories that you listen to, where you go to, and if they're creating fear or enragement, for however they're presented, they're working you, folks. They're discipling you. Studies show that most people touch their phones 2,000 times a day. Two years ago, Apple did a study. The average smartphone user unlocks their phone 150 times a day. Now, you may not do it with a code anymore. I don't. I do it with my face. But I unlock my phone probably 200 times a day. I've done it 20 times today, and I've preached a message already. Now, I am not telling you that um, you shouldn't use these media. We use it. We broadcast the first service. Um, I've got an iPad up here. I'm using it for communication. Um, But what an author, um, Jay Kim, says, I think is a great illustration. Um, All tools, and and digital media is a tool, all tools um, are, um, are useful if you use them in the right way. He uses the illustration of a hammer. A hammer can be used to um, build something in a constructive way, or a hammer can be used to attack somebody. How you use the tool is what makes the difference. He goes on to say, but the difference between a hammer and a phone is that a hammer is not bleaking and beeping at you all day. But your phone is beeping at you and blinking at you all day, and you know what? My phone doesn't even have to be down there because it's right here. You text me right now, I'll feel it on my wrist. Don't text me right now. I'll feel a little vibration on my wrist. And and what it'll do is go, oh, you're important. Somebody needs you. 
Somebody thinks your answer is going to be the best answer. It's going to solve the world's problem. You're important. Um, um, folks, kids, your parents should restrict your iPhone use more than they do. Your parents should not let you use your phone as much as you do already. I don't know how much they're letting you use it. It should be restricted more. Parents, you should restrict their iPhone use. Parents, you should be an example and restrict your own iPhone use. Because that thing is discipling you. It is creating for you the values of the world, how you shop, what you look at, what you're addicted to because it vibrates or it just scrolls up the next thing you want. Read the social dilemma or watch the social dilemma. That phone is discipling you. Grandparents? Who texted me? Grant Nabholtz. He's not even here. I'm important, though. That phone is trying to create an identity for you. Um that is horrible. Um, grandparents, you need to talk to your kids and your grandkids about this. Parents, put your phones away when you go home. Ken, Dawn, we need to put our phones away rather than having them right there on the counter where they're flashing. So in the middle of whatever we're doing, we have to go over and unlock it for the 152nd time today. The other thing that's going on in our world is this sexual gender identity revolution, it's perverting the core of our ability to love. Um, When I was a kid, I'm 61, when I was a kid, exposure to pornography was at about 25%. About 25% of of my friends, when I was young, about 25% had been exposed to pornography. Now, that stat for males is 100%. You need to assume, by the time you're 18, 100% of the males in this room have been exposed to pornography. And things fire in your brain when you get connected with that kind of sexual stimulation that creates an addictive response in your brain that tells you, I want more of it. Fear, outrage, sexual response. All of them create the same thing in your brain. Um, Neuroplasticity is happening in your brain, and it's framing how you're thinking so that you feel like you need more of that. Um, The statistics, not just of exposure to pornography, but of significant problems, addiction to pornography, the statistics are crazy high. 70 to 80% of males, you can just assume 70, 80% of males have a problem with pornography. And this may be true for you, may be true for you. There is grace, there's forgiveness, there's an opportunity for you to turn to the Lord and for you to reframe um, how you view the world. But I need you to think about this, particularly if you're the parent of of daughters. Um, What happens in that repeatedly going back to pornography is it begins to frame, oh, that's what's normal, It's not what's normal, folks. You bring that into a marriage, and it's going to really corrupt your ability to actually love very well. By the way, the same thing is true for females. 
Because the rise of uh, addiction to pornography in females is, is crazy high. But the same dynamics go on in terms of what happens in your brain. Um, this gender identity thing, when my wife was young, um, if she had a friend over and they, she braided their hair, they braided each other's hair, um, and she enjoyed that, it was fun, and, and this was her friend, and she was felt closer to that friend than the other fifth grade boy um, who, you know, they sent notes to each other and he pulled her hair or whatever. If she felt closer to that friend because she was braiding her hair, it's because she's a girl. Now, if you're braiding somebody's hair and you enjoy it, and maybe you feel closer to this friend who's a girl, and you're in fifth grade than the boy, our society is telling you, you've got a gender identity issue. Your sexual preference you need to probably examine, and maybe even just your gender identity. That's the world in which we're growing up. Um, and, and we can't sit back and point our fingers at the judge's generation and say, how could they be so corrupt? We are that way, unless we are intentionally doing what, what our songs and what this book is going to tell us. Recognize the faithfulness of God and be committed to only him. There is grace and forgiveness for all of this. Because in a room like this, the, the prevalence of sexual abuse and sexual addiction makes me say 85% of the people in this room struggle with that. That's the world in which we live, and we have to fight against it. Is there any hope? A lot of what I'm talking about came from this book. I just got it uh, yesterday, but I I listened to an interview, and I I skimmed through it yesterday. I'll I'll read it more on the plane. Um, J. Kim has written this fascinating book. He wrote a book on the analog church that basically says this. He wrote it before the pandemic, but it was published during the pandemic, and he basically said this, analog church, we need to be in each other's presence more. The analog church is a myth (laughs) that we could just do it digitally. We need to be in each other's presence. This book, The Analog Christian, he talks about a lot of what I just talked about. A lot of what I just said came from, uh, a part of what I just said came from what he said. But he does a fascinating thing in this book. The, the chapter titles in the book are, are what you see on the screen. He talks about how um, the internet, digital media, news media, um, social media, all of that, what it generates in us is self-centric despair, comparison to others, contempt, impatience, hostility, forgetfulness of who we really are, forgetfulness of our identity in Christ, outrage, and reckless indulgence. That's what social media generates. And what he does is he said, these are all the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. If we are committed to Christ and letting the the Holy Spirit frame us, we can live with love. And here's the hope. We can live with love instead of self-centered despair. We can have joy instead of comparison. We can have peace instead of contempt. We can have patience instead of impatience, kindness and goodness instead of hostility, faithfulness instead of forgetfulness, gentleness instead of outrage, and self-control instead of uh, reckless indulgence. These are the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. And if we can commit ourselves, no matter where you've been, there's grace for that. But moving back toward let the fruit of the Spirit, which, by the way, is a description of our Savior Jesus Christ and being formed into his image, that blinking thing, that vibrating thing is trying to form our identity. By the way, this is why I'm preaching a survey of the Bible series. I'm not preaching a survey of the Bible just so I can finish getting through the Bible and we could say, oh, we did a survey through the Bible. I'm preaching a survey through the Bible so that instead of surfing 
internet and Pinterest and um, Instagram and whatever you spend all your time on, YouTube videos, um, r- rather than doing that, that you'll read your Bible. <laughs> I'm trying to give you a frame for understanding Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and today Judges eventually, so that you can read it instead of going down some rabbit hole on social media. Um, that's why I'm doing this, so that you can be engaged with your Bible more. Um, <laughs> J. Kim says this, the path to human flourishing doesn't run through the White House, it runs through the cross of Calvary. By the way, I don't know where you are politically. I'm a conservative guy politically, but here's what I know. Over the last six years, you've been enraged by something going on in the White House. But the path to human flourishing doesn't run through the White House. It runs through the cross of Calvary. And we need to remember that. And we need to stop trying to get other people enraged on on the Internet and just pray for people a little bit more. Our allegiance is not to any elected official. And this is the message of judges, by the way. Our allegiance is to Jesus, our king. Our allegiance is not to anybody like Othniel or Jephthah or Gideon or Samson. Our allegiance is to Jesus, our king. The other interview I read or listened to this week was with Julie Slattery. Julie Slattery has written a lot of um, books that mostly focus on women and particularly women raising young girls. And if you're not familiar with this as a parent or as a grandparent, you need to read some of her other stuff. But this book she's written, uh, she's now kind of writing for men and women together in marriage. Um, and, and, and she addresses all of these these cultural pulls. But, but then her book is arranged um, around the, the things that really make a, a healthy and sexually vibrant marriage. And that is when there's faithfulness, intimate knowing, sacrificial love, and passionate celebration. Rather than all of the stuff that the internet tells you, this is what you've got to do to thrive. Um, all of that just to say, what's forming you? The book of Judges is going to tell you it's easy for the world to form you and the world to get turned upside down. Um, I'm going to assume that you know there's 28 messages and 57 resources on the internet. But I'm going to review the book of Judges just real quickly for you. The theme of Judges is this. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. They did not have a king to guide them. And by the way, these um, fantastic Uh, warlord leaders they had. They weren't the solution, and neither was David, because the book is a a setup for for David being the king, but he falls too, because he's not the kind of king we need. We need the Son of God. But in Israel, they had no king, and because they didn't have someone to lead them who was worthy, everyone did as they saw fit. Do whatever makes you happy. Does that sound like our world? Do whatever makes you happy. That will destroy you. Um, Now I want to move through kind of what we've been going through in these books. Again, we've gone through this a lot. Uh, But who wrote it? Who's listening to it? When did it happen? Where are they and why? Who wrote the book? We don't really know. Okay, that's the real answer. The, the, The author is unidentified. The details that they know seem to make you think that they live close to this period, but it's such a long period that they're covering, about 375 years, it's, it's such, or 325 years, it's such a, a long period that in all likelihood the, the, the oral tradition of all of these stories were passed along, 
And um, perhaps Samuel is a good suggestion for who wrote it. The, the reason I say that is because that's what the ancient rabbis said. So I'm with the rabbis, maybe Samuel, okay? We don't really know who wrote it. Um, when did it happen? The events occurred um, during roughly 325-year period between the death of Joshua in 1375 B.C. to just before the reign of Saul in 1050 B.C., um, let me put that together. This is a chart we use uh, frequently that this is kind of the, the whole, how the whole Old Testament fits together. There are 11 books that are the narrative. All the books uh, fit together this way. Um, zero in on our section here. The exodus from Israel with Moses probably took place in 1446 BC, 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. Then they conquer the land. Uh, Joshua conquers the strategic strongholds. Um, that were probably military. Then he divides the land out, and he says to each one of the tribes, you guys go control your area. And then he dies in 1375. Then the book of Judges takes place, and, and the stories go from about 1375 to 1050. That's what's happening in the book of Judges. That period is being covered. Um, when was it composed? It, it's probably written just prior to the reign of David, establishing the need for a monarchy, these judges, they weren't helpful, to present a backdrop for the superiority of the reign of David over the reign of Saul. If you read First and Second Samuel closely, you'll find out that in Judges, anything related to anything Saul is put in a bad light. Anything related to anything David is put in a good light. So it's probably setting the stage for none of these dynamic big personalities. They're not your solution. The people wanted Saul he's not your solution. It's someone from the line of David, and maybe people thought David was the solution, but then he goes off the track as well. But it's setting up this need to get you to the line of David. Um, Where were they? These people were living in the fragmented nation. They had been distributed the land, each tribe given their land, but as each tribe was given a section of the land, they were supposed to control it, and they didn't. And because they didn't, they were struggling with their own section, and now they became fragmented in the book of Judges. They won't help each other. There's great opposition growing from the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all of those guys, especially the Philistines, who, by the way, none of them are going to be able to take care of. Saul's not going to be able to take care of, but David takes care of the Philistines. This is how the book is developed. Um, There's some good guys and bad guys. The good guys are, you know, God's people. The bad guys are all of these other Canaanites. And these judges, let me say this, the, ju- the book of Judges is not chronologically sequenced. They, it's Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak. That's how it's presented, but that's not a chronological flow. Um, it's not chronological, and these judges don't, um, they don't judge in the whole land. It's just a certain section of the land, okay? So they judge. And when you think of judges, don't think of... Um, Judge Braswell or somebody like that. You know, that, we're not talking about a judge like that. We're talking more um, Marshall Dillon. Okay, that's who you should think of if you know who Marshall Dillon is. Somebody who can gather some people around to take care of some injustices, and then people come to him to look for solutions. He's he's more like a warlord than some political or elected official. Okay, that's what these judges are. It isn't sequential. It isn't chronological, and it's all over the land. Why was it written? Judges was written to remind God's people that the Lord will discipline his people. That's part of his faithfulness, but he will also deliver them in accordance with his own faithful character and promises. The people needed to be disciplined. And this book shows their repeated discipline and how it had cycles because they never would repent. They would just cry out to the Lord. 
Why was it written? Because the Israelites had become as wicked as the Canaanites. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are common in Israel. By the time you get to the end of the book, what happens at the end of the book is exactly what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, even worse. And it's written because the people didn't understand that there were some things that were off limits to them and they let them stay around. Um, It's the word harem that we talked about in Judges. Um, It's something that is devoted to God and God can either use it for his purposes or he can use it to destroy it. And they did not get rid of the things that were destroying them. They did not take a proper look at the culture and say, that thing is shaping me and I'm going to take um, steps against it. That is not what they did. So what does the book do? How is, it, how is it arranged and what is it trying to say to us? Well, the book is arranged this way. This isn't very helpful, but there's two, there's, there's a double introduction. One of them political about how they failed in their wars. One of them theological about how idolatry was creeping in. Then there are 12 judges, six of them major, um, the ones we know, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and then some minor ones. Some of them we know nothing about them. We just know Tola. He was a judge. That's all we know, okay? And then it ends with a double conclusion that's the opposite of the, of the double introduction. The double introduction is their failure in war and then their idolatry. The conclusion is their idolatry and then the war that begins to destroy their nation. Um, I've got a new chart out there. By the way, this is a new chart from even when we preached through Judges. The charts are always changing. If Dawn kept them, she'd have 37 versions of the Genesis chart. She doesn't keep them. Um, it's a new chart. I'm going to change it next week, so don't worry about that. Um, but but here, here's how I think Judges is arranged. It starts off with this failure in war. They do a good job, but not a complete job. The next generation begins to embrace idolatry. The end of the book is going to say, and that idolatry really got bad, and the wars were not wars with other people. Internally, the wars, were, it was now a civil war, and they're trying to kill each other. In the middle of that, you get these 12 judges, six major, six minor, symbolically saying the whole nation is affected by this. There's also a pattern that happens in here. It's a spiraling cycle of of degeneration. Um, The people sin. There's an oppressor that comes as God's discipline. They cry out. I don't think they ever repent. God does deliver them. There's some rest, and then they repeat it. Um, But it's a cycle that gets worse and worse throughout the whole book. That's why we had toilets up here, is it's not a a linear cycle. It's getting worse. In fact, if I put the spiral on the book, it goes down. Everything, their their sin gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, by the way, with Jephthah, I think it's chapter 10, verse 9, God says, I'm not going to deliver you anymore. And from that time, he doesn't fully deliver. Um, I mean, the book just keeps getting worse and worse. So what is the message here? The author recorded the continuing cycles of the nation's sinful idolatry, domination by foreign oppressors, and deliverance through sovereignly appointed judges who are like warlords in order to demonstrate Yahweh's faithfulness to his covenant promise to punish Israel's apostasy, the Israelites look like the Canaanites, and to motivate the nation to recognize their need for a centralized form of government, a monarchy, in anticipation of the Messiah. I know it's a mouthful. It's the whole book of Judges. It's 28 messages in one sentence. But the whole book is showing they were getting so bad, they were corrupted by the society around them. And we've got to stop pointing our fingers at them because, and I hope it's not true in our church as much as it is in most, but I'm not pretending. Last week, I really was happy about prayer, but I didn't pray. Um, I think 
It's easy for us as, as, as church people to say we're not like the world, but my identity's right here because it's flashing at me. It's telling me here, this is your identity. Um, and all of that is, is to show we need a king, not a dynamic, charismatic leader like the judges. We need not someone we choose who we think is better than the others like Saul. We need God's choice, but not in a human but in the Son of God. This thing all is pointing us eventually to Jesus. So what are some convictions we need to have? So what? What do we do with all this? What should we believe? We should believe the Lord is faithful to all of his promises, and that includes his faithfulness to discipline his people. God will discipline us. God doesn't abandon his people, but he will let his people experience the consequences of their choices. And again, God will accomplish what he's going to accomplish. Numbers tells us that. Deuteronomy tells us he's serious about all of his, um, how he wants his people to live. And he's going to accomplish it, but our participation in his promises and our enjoyment of his promises is based on our faithfulness and obedience to him. And we need more than a dynamic human leader. We need the Son of God. That's what the book teaches us, and we should believe that. So how should we behave? I think it's real simple. Put all your hope and trust in King Jesus. Not Samson, not Gideon, not any elected official, not me. Dynamic leader, I'm not dynamic leader. Dynamic leaders, though, in the church are falling all the time. Um, and I'm not above it. I'm asking you to pray for me. Um, pray that I don't fall. But don't put your trust in me or any other spiritual leader you know. Put all your hope and trust in King Jesus. Fall in love with him more and more every day. Where does all this fit in the whole flow? It shows the demonstration of our need for a monarchy and need, ultimately led by the Son of God. We need, we need a king. <laughs> there was no king, and with no king, they did whatever was right in their own eyes. They did as they saw fit. And that's what our world even says is the best thing for you to do. We need a king so we can do what is wise and prudent and best. And so some next steps for us here. Stop putting your hope and trust in dynamic personalities personalities, and human institutions. It will always fail you. Commit yourself to be faithful to God in the midst of a corrupt culture because it is discipling us. And Neil Postman said, your TV will do it, and he had no idea what was coming because it was, it was going to be in our hand, it was going to be in front of us on a screen and then in our hands and now on our wrists. And it's discipling us. Commit yourself to Scripture. And give your undying allegiance to Jesus Christ. Make it your passion to figure out how to fall in love with Jesus more and more every day. Father, thank you for the clarity of the warning that goes out from your message. Thank you for the promise of your faithfulness that we have sung about, that we will continue to sing about um, thank you for um, the clarity of the call to be faithful to you. Lord, help to preserve us from the allure, uh, the subtle allure, the overt allure of our culture that is trying to shape us into something that will destroy us. And Father, I pray that we would have the passion and conviction to live as a unique, peculiar people in this world, not odd and weird, but different than the world because we're committed to you. 
Father, I pray that you would do that for me, for us, for your people, for the sake of our witness and our families and our future. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.